You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Tomorrow night, hear from an apostate, someone who left the Church of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not just as a kid, not just as a participator, but someone who became an elder of the church. Thank you so much, Shane, for being up for this. He's going to be plain and can support. He maintains every assertion that he makes, and that will be tomorrow night from 9.30. Don't miss it. Later on this hour, the story of Gate Parr, told from both perspectives. It's a fascinating story. Brutal as all hell. Uh, and it happened in 1864 in Tauranga. And be listening to win yourself a copy of the book too. Victory at Gate Par? Question mark. Next up though, the world of human statistics. A very New Zealand poll was taken. Jonathan Ipsos, or Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, will be joining us after the commercial break. Very good evening. Oh, Keith Mansfield, you rock. That was a Keith Mansfield, Mansfield song. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. The world of human statistics with Ipsos Research Director Jonathan Dodd in a big haul of New Zealand attitudes and concerns this week. So no shortage of um, relevant information for the New Zealander. Jonathan. Yeah, good night. How are you, Grant? All right, well, good, yeah. Now, I think relevancy is the word for the day because it's been really interesting seeing how people's perceptions and worries have changed since we lasted um, the last wave of our uh, New Zealand issues monitor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last two times that we discussed this on the show, you know, we were always finding out that the big issue that was really on people's minds was housing, inflation, healthcare, poverty, you know, the, sort of the perennials. Yeah, I don't want to... Uh, make fun of them, but you know they're, they're the standard ones that are always up there and so forth. The yeah. house stuff in particular, and um, but though you could say that they are somewhat um, uh, generic issues to a point where you may not be really directly um, affected by them, but you know that they're a big issue out there and so forth. However, this time around, right up there, it's still it's gone to you know this is like top forty type stuff. You know when you give people the list of twenty three subjects and, and issues of concern and get them to pick the top three for them, we have seen, funnily enough, petrol prices go right up. Right. So, well, that that's because it's happening now. But everything's happening now. It's the degree to which it happens to you and hits you specifically oh, right. at the petrol pump. And that is my point about relevancy. Mm. You can sit there and go, and, and like I can sit here in my nice mortgage-free house and think, yes, housing is very terrible because my kids are other people, but it's not actually affecting me. In fact, it's doing well as prices go up as a, as a house owner. Mm -hmm. But no matter how much money you've got, you still fill up fuel at the tank and sit there going, well, that's another 30 or 20 or 30 bucks to fill up the tank. Um, especially if you're in Auckland, and it's even higher. So that's one of those things where no matter how much money you've got, you're sitting there going, well, I'm now spending more for the same thing than I used to, and it's been highly politicised and, and talked about. So it's just one of those issues where, um, you know, whether a house has now gone from $50,000 to $100,000 out of reach, you know, and that's you know, a $50,000 difference, for example, but a $20 difference every day that you're paying, is a real issue, especially considering how um, so many New Zealanders really do have to watch every single penny. So it's one of those issues where, um, as examples, we just see 
something really stringing up. So like when we first did this in February, 8% of people said petrol prices was a big issue. Now it's 31. Okay. So no, yeah, uh, how many... pretty big. <laughs> How many correspond? How many respondents? That's the first thing to know. How uh, big is the survey? Six hundred over six hundred. Okay. But, yeah. So yeah. So that's in fact, if you'd only have to interview fifty people, and you, that kind of result would be pretty significant. Okay. And so margin of error four percent. Uh, for about six hundred, mm-hmm. yeah, it's about four yeah. percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I yeah. I made the mistake of printing out this survey, and it took about half an hour. <laughs> I thought, oh no, this is the same size as usual. Oh no, I can't make the goddamn thing stop. I, I think I can, but I just let it go. Um, okay. So the other big issues, because this is um, well, covering quite a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Well, in particular, we always like looking at this and looking at the differences, and. I find it particularly interesting when you're looking at the differences um, in A by age and income, because of course what worries us when we're 25 is very different to what worries us when we're 65. And again, it says that people respond according to what's already personally affecting them or where they feel most um, liable to being affected, mm. rather than looking at a, at a wider issue. So when you're young, like you're 18 to 24, you're much more likely to say in your top three of issues of concern is uh, drugs and alcohol. And either because obviously you're partaking in it or you're seeing other people um, partaking in it, you're seeing all the bad effects and so forth. So drugs and alcohol is right up there if you're younger. But then once you're about uh, 25 and you're asking about what all these big issues are, that just disappears. And what comes along in its place as a big issue of concern is health care. Mm. That's 25 to 54-year-olds because, of course, that's when it's over the health care. You start getting an adult, having health issues, raising a family, seeing your, your parents getting older and all the rest of it. So suddenly it's like, oh, I'm not 25 and you know, 25 and bulletproof anymore. We've each got a health system to worry about for my kids or my wife or my elderly parents. So the health care comes an issue and then it gets really important once you're over 55. So I'm not going to talk the numbers, but that becomes a big issue. And then um, and what shrinks away is the worries about inflation and cost of living. So when you're younger, it's about the cost of living, because, of course, when you're younger, you tend to earn less. And then you can see the pattern here. You get older, so costs aren't such a big issue, but your health is. So you can see how your priorities change. You go from being all concerned about drugs to then realising you're not bulletproof and worried about health, and then you've got enough money so you don't worry about income. And then when you're 65 and over, what really comes through, and I thought this is really interesting, is crime and law. Now, it's not because everybody aged 65 and over is out there committing crimes and worried about getting caught, but of course, well, as you get older, you feel more um, more frail, I guess, maybe, maybe physically frail, but more... Um, conservative, often. More cons- well, it might be emotionally conservative, but um, I'm trying to think of the word, so you're, you might be feeling more at risk. You know, if you're, if you're in your 30s and you think about a home intruder coming in, you might think, well, I'll be able to give them what's or right, yeah. a good fight. But once you're 70... You feel vulnerable. You're like, yeah, you're more vulnerable is the word, and you're more likely to be living at home. So basically, that 65 and over group, you've got a lot more people on their own and obviously a lot more women on their own. So you're a little lady on your own, you you know, um, and you're watching the news and how it misrepresents issues like crime and stuff, and you suddenly sit there thinking, well... You know, crime and laws. So it just shows it's interesting. So particularly, of course, when you're a politician and you've got to work out, well, what do you talk about? So if you're going to the, uh, you know, an age concern meeting and you're on the hustings, you're going to talk about something quite different to when you go to university. Oh, God, I hate politicians. <laughs> I mean, they're doing that just because they want their vote, not that they're going to do anything about it. That's just lying well, spin. Damn well, them. Well, you could say that, of course, 
um, it's about tailoring your message to the audience and making sure you're relevant and you're talking about the policies. Trying to stay in power, yeah. Okay, well, Well, let's have a look at some... part of democracy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, now let's have a look at some of the uh, attitudes towards parties and policies. This is interesting. New Zealand, uh, a place... Uh, place more importance on party policies over having a leader I prefer. Is this because people like to put down, like to think that they do rather than actually do? Yeah, I think there'll be a bit of that. You like to you like to claim that you make a, um, a sound and reasonable decision based yes. on policy. Yes. But the, the big flaw in that is um, that Jacinda Ardern came in and you saw the results of Jacinda coming on board and replacing Andrew Little. The Labor Party didn't really change any policies between that leadership change. You just had a different person delivering. Mm. So there's a big chunk of people there who claim to be policies, and of course some will be communication. Maybe Mm. they actually understood the policies better when she communicated it. Um, But it's an interesting thing, particularly when you're looking at um, how that's in in other countries, and I think it it speaks to the rise in popularism and, and people voting for personalities rather than rather than the policies? Oh, in many ways they always yeah. have. Look at Rob Muldoon. Um, look at the failed personalities of the last lot of the Labour Party. You know, exactly. it's, it's just real limp stuff. Nobody liked them. Yeah. Well, you're just swapping from one to the other. It would have been fascinating to have just under up against John Key because then you would have had two good personalities. Yeah, yeah. So you know, policy, policy, uh, has policies I fully support. 44% the next up represents the interests of people like me, you selfish people. <laughs> 39% is the next up. Yeah, but then it's the split between the men and the women. So the women are much more likely, they're about uh, 10% more likely to say they're looking for a, um, somebody who represents people like me. So does that mean that women are looking for relevance or the more selfish? Thinking about that. Whereas the men, of course, yeah, I mean, it's fun applying stereotypes here, isn't it? The men were much more likely than women to say, I want somebody who's competent. It's yeah. about governance, not personality or so forth. Yeah, there, there are truths yeah. truth to um, <laughs> <laughs> stereotypes as well, as you well know. Uh, yeah. Labour perceived better at communicating issues. They, they get a pretty good run here, don't they? Oh, they do, and that reflects the fact that um, Labor's continuing, that, well, I should say the government, well, this this question here, talking about their the communication, Labor does do very well, but as does the overall coalition government, they've been continuously um, scoring well and getting better. Um, so they're still on a rise there. But, but is that due to uh, the fact that the opposition, the National Party, has just been worried about their internal problems? It has been the story for the last month. Well, the point is, the fine print, I know you haven't read all 50 pages of the report, but uh, the surveying, the survey period was in the midst of the fuel issues, but before the Jamie Jamie Lee Ross guy. Right. It happened before that. But regardless of Jamie or not, we, I think it's fair to say that Simon does have a bit of a charisma gap. Um, so you, you're getting that issue going on there as well. Um, and with that in mind, when you're asking, you know, which party is the best to, uh, you know, to tackle all these various issues, it's still very clearly Labour, except for the petrol prices. Yeah. Because, of course, that is very cleanly. Oh, in retrospect, you know, so not surprisingly, people are going, well, it's not about Labour. They're the cause of the problems. The Nationals going really high in that regard. But going back to when we first asked questions about the fuel tax, which is before it came on board, of course, you had people going, I don't mind paying a bit extra if it means solving the Auckland traffic problems. So maybe if we added a question about which party is the best at tackling the Auckland traffic problems, you had people going, well, I don't like the fuel tax, but 
Yeah. It, it's there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I I don't mind paying a bit more, but I hate the fuel tax. It's not, well, people. Who needs them? For yeah, goodness well, sake. <laughs> it's all in communication. They should stop calling it a fuel tax and call it a transport improvement investment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for a good euphemism. Hey, like, um, wow, it's cheap, you know, but part of you, you can actually have that at, at the petrol pump. It's yeah. Years. Yeah, 10% of what you spend today will go towards solving Auckland's traffic problems. I'm, you, you, I'm not, all good and fuzzy. I'm not kidding you. A uh, finance investment company in the city of London, after a really bad performing year, said that they degrew. They degrew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay. I love that. Uh, you want to talk about something called the Peters Principle, as far as yeah, our psychological think... whatever it is goes out yeah. um, the way our brains affect what we do. Yep, and a lot of people will be familiar with this. And again, um, it's about, and I know we tried to talk about the psychology of things like this, and, and given, given some recent events, I thought this would be interesting to look into. You know, people will be familiar with this probably. And what a, um, the basic intention was sort of written in a semi-satirical piece in 1968 by a um, guy called Lawrence Peter. And he sort of put together a hypothetical case file and he came up with this principle, which is that in a hierarchy, every employee tends to rise to his level of incompetence. Mm. So you know the thing that most people listening probably might think of somebody like this in their um, in their office where you do well, you get promoted, you do well, get promoted, you do well, you get promoted, then you're not doing very well. In fact, you're doing really bloody average, so you don't get promoted. So you stay in a role performing really averagely, and you can get a whole lot of people in middle to upper management in that groove of doing a pretty average job. Uh, and I say yeah. that as a person who's been in the same role for about 20 years, but it's just because I know enough about senior management to avoid it. Um, <laughs> the, um, and the thing is, it was so satirical what people you know, thought that makes sense, just you probably did. But there's a bit of been a research that's just been done at the University of Minnesota looking into this, and they analysed like 53,000 sales employees at, at 214 American companies over six years, and over that time, 1,500 of these sales reps were promoted to become managers. And now, this is quite an extreme example because, you know, a really well-performing sales rep, you know, they're, they're attackers. They're, they're hungry. They're wheelers and dealers. But, you know, that's the kind of people who aren't really selling well. And they work on their own and, and all the rest of it. So when they had to become a sales manager and look after a team and look after people and, and actually work with colleagues and all the rest of it, they did a terrible job. So you had a whole lot of sales managers who were great on the end of a phone at landing a deal, but they couldn't manage a team. Right. And they, yeah, so the managed to prove it. Very different they, jobs. Yeah, because you go into a job because you want to do X, and the chances are it's not that you wanted to be a manager. Obviously, there are business managers. Right. But I was thinking about this because we see this a lot in, um, in New Zealand, and I think it's a real issue in New Zealand where – We've got a very small pool of candidates and we still have a cultural cringe and we think anybody coming from overseas has got to be better. And there's so many examples of very poor senior managers in very high-profile roles doing a really, really bad job. Now, I'm not going to name any companies because they might become clients in the future. But uh, there's there's some pretty high-profile ones out there that have been used particularly. um, And... um, you're going to say something? 
Yeah, I was going to say, we've got to wrap it up. So there you go. I'm, be- I'm being the interview manager at the moment. Thank you for the your input. The door. <laughs> no, well, thank you very much, Jonathan. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. A New Zealand history book is out and about. You'll spot it in a bookstore near you. Victory at Gate Par, question mark. And as we know, some British people always thought it was Gate. Anyway, the Battle of Hukihinahina. <laughs> Hina. Uh, this is in 1864. It's one of our most infamous slash famous military conflicts during colonial times. And joining us are both authors, because they have two perspectives on this. First of all, Buddy Mikauri is a descendant of some of the combatants there. G'day, Buddy. Kia ora. And also for the military history side of things, Cliff Simons. Hello, Cliff. Hello, Graham. All right, we're going to see how this goes as a tag team. I don't know who wants to answer what. You can fight over it. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> this battle, Gate Power, it actually makes the cut for internationally studied conflicts and history buffs. It is a remarkable thing, isn't it? Maybe for the military side of things. Cliff? Uh, yes, it is. It's, um, it's one of those... Um, iconic, to use that word, New Zealand colonial battles. It certainly didn't have one of the highest death tolls, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a really interesting battle. And there are lots of stories and myths and legends around it that gives it a lot of colour. So it is certainly one of, the, one of the really interesting battles from that period. Where a part of the world's most successful army got a bloody nose, and unexpectedly... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, and it was most unexpected. They certainly outnumbered the, um, the Maori defenders by a large amount. There was a fairly clear expectation that they were going to be successful on the day, that they weren't. Okay, what led to the battle? Why did it happen? The forces involved, the tribes. Let's go to Buddy. Well, it follows on from the uh, invasion of the Waikato in the previous year, in 1863. The tribes in Tauranga were responsible for not only sending their own soldiers to take part in the um, the battle over the Kaimais and in, in, in Tainui country, but also providing supplies, more importantly, so that supplies of arms and food. Once um, the Imperial Army decided that they had the Waikato under control, um, they turned their attention to Tauranga, so blockading the port to stop the ongoing supply. And... Um, of course, the local Māori interpreted the arrival of troops as being an invasion. Uh, this is close to Waikato. Is this associated with the King movement yet? Yes, of course. And um, Tauranga was a very early supporter of that whole uh, King movement, so that's how they became involved. We kind of explained the background to all this in the earlier chapters of the book. Who were the forces involved then, the military leaders on the Māori side? On the Māori side, um, well, the man generally accredited with leading the Māori side is a Ngāi chief called Rawiri Puhirake, and then there are members of the, the local iwi in Tauranga, plus um, their allies. So you have tribes from a far field as a Pōriki sending people from Te Arawa uh, over in the Rotorua area, uh, from up the Coromandel Peninsula, some of those Thames people coming down. So... You know, an amalgam of um, of tribes participating. I think a lot of them on the basis that 
the tolling of people were their traditional allies, and so they saw this as a way of supporting them. This was a confederation of tribes at this stage then? I don't think I'd go so far as to give them that formal a title. It's more an association of people, you know, in alliances forged over many decades. Oh, OK. And there were a number of tribes that subscribed to the Kingitanga or the King Movement. Mm. They had been sending emissaries further afield as far as the East Coast to try and recruit more warriors to fight in the Waikato. But once the, uh, the wars in the Waikato came to an end, you had a lot of fighters still looking to continue, and the, the war moved across the Kaimais to Tauranga, and so some of them came here to carry on, particularly in the second battle, which was the Battle of Tiranga. And we should say that is almost as much as the book of the book as um, the preliminary battle of Gate Pa. Were there mm. any... Maori forces fighting with the British at this stage? Oh, definitely. It's like in all those uh, colonial conflicts, you had people who found these wars as a way to continue previous inter-hapu or inter-tribal uh, enmity between between them. Um, so this was just an, a new format, if you like, for continuing those disputes, some of them which were, were you know, age-old. Right. But there's also a, um, a mercenary aspect attached to it. You know, clearly there were rewards for um, serving alongside the British troops and people just took advantage of that. Yeah, my enemy's enemy is my friend sort of thing. Yes, that's yeah. right. Mm. Okay, now this remarkable letter from Henare Taratoa to the Colonel. Just tell us about this, buddy. Was it Greer or ca uh, Cameron? Yes, it's Greer. It's probably stage. got a bit of, bit of background to that, so I'll leave Cliff to talk about that, Graham. Okay, Cliff. Once the troops arrived in Tauranga, they established themselves at the tip of the uh, the peninsula, that called the Papa Peninsula, uh, in the old mission station buildings, and they made a couple of very strong redoubts, and it was too strong a position for the Maori to attack. So... The, the Maori strategy was to try and lure the British out into a decisive battle somewhere in, inland, somewhere in the hinterland. As part of that strategy, a number of tactics were used to try and um, entice Colonel Greer to come and fight. And one of them was to send um, a letter uh, basically accusing them of various things, you know, so that Greer would come and have a go. But Greer was under instructions not to not to uh, to go on the offensive at that stage, and also he didn't have enough men at that point to actually go inland and look and look for a battle and mm. keep the the camp safe as well. It's a remarkable letter just to read. Yeah. Your first offence, blah blah. Yeah. Your second, the third, the fourth. It's it's <laughs> the list of grievances, and then I want to read it out. Actually, the last line, uh, okay. friend, we thoroughly understand your intentions now. Do you hearken? A challenge for a fight between us is declared. The day of fighting, Friday, the 1st of April, 1864. This mm. is a fixed challenge from all the tribes. When our letter reaches you, write a reply to us. No more. Henari Taratoa. An incredible yeah. thing. So that's the opposite of sneaking up on someone, isn't it? Yes, this was intended to be a very formal challenge. When the British arrived, the warriors who, who intended to fight went back to some of their traditional pass sites along the, the, the Kaimai Ranges mm. and established very strong positions. And then they're sitting there waiting. And, of course, Colonel Greer was sitting down in, in the mission building. 
and he had no intention of going up there to fight at that stage. So, you know, you can't restrain all these young warriors for too long, and so he had to try and establish a date and a, a, for an actual battle. But um, at that point, Greer didn't take the bait. This is still early on. The Battle of Gate Par is what we're talking about, and it's one of those situations which is often talked about as a, a showcase for Maori military discipline and smarts. Mm. In learning 19th century warfare, what was the training that went on amongst the tribes so they could fight as one? Buddy, do you know? Well, there's a number of elements to that question, um, Graham. I mean, one of the important um, aspects of the battle is the engineering side of things. We know that a couple of decades earlier, a number of Tauranga people had been taken as slaves up north. And so when the British were fighting the northern tribes in the 1840s, that's when they first encountered artillery fire and how to cope with that through the construction of fortifications which gave you protection from shell fire. So when it came to Gate Pa, those people who had been up north had returned to Tauranga and so um, one of them, Penetaka Tuai, is credited as being the engineer who designed the Gate Pa defences. Cliff explains how those defences were formed and how effective they were in protecting Māori inside from this tremendous barrage that the British put up. I mean, they had the biggest collection of artillery that New Zealand had seen to that point. One of the guns, this huge monster thing, which um, I don't know how the heck they got it up there to the par, but somehow they did. Um, And so they subjected the par to this tremendous bombardment all day and the attack only went on, went in about four o'clock in the afternoon. So um, it's remarkable that so many of the defenders survived that barrage and were in a position to participate in what happened next. Yeah, it was one hell of a shock. And this is a precursor to something along the dynamics of the Battle of the Somme. I don't want to diminish the utter horrors of that. Uh, this is smaller scale, but the dynamic is there. We're looking at trench warfare, aren't we, Cliff? Yes, we are. We're looking at people who are in an entrenched position, you know, sitting through a day of quite heavy bombardment. One of the things about the battle, though, was that the site of the par had a higher elevation than where the, the guns themselves were. So some of the smaller guns, the mortars and howitzers, were able to mob shells up and over and down onto the par. But the heavier guns, because they were firing on a lower trajectory, and they were actually guns that were brought in uh, off some of the warships in the harbour, they um, were just firing on a flat trajectory and the shells were skipping off the front of the par and flying way over the back. So they weren't as effective as you might think. Can we just line up the gear that is um, available on both sides? It's way out of proportion, isn't it? No, no one had seen this sort of... These are explosive shells, artillery, that the British troops have got? Well, they, they had a mixture of guns. They had some of the older smooth war guns, but what's uh, fascinating about this battle or this period of battles in New Zealand is that it's these guns are really the latest technology, and it's during the um, the Industrial Revolution, and there's a lot of development happening in all sorts of fields, and of course warfare as well. This battle is fought when the American Civil War is going on, yep. and the American Civil War is often considered to be the first industrial war or the machine age war and the same sort of technology was being used here in New Zealand. So you had Armstrong guns which could fire very powerfully and and a long way and they had rifled 
muzzles so that the the shells would fly out and fly very accurately. They were explosive shells and they could set a fuse on them so that they could explode above the par or embed themselves in the ground and explode once they were in the earthworks. So, yes, very up-to-date technology. Right. As far as the Maori defenders, they had no artillery and they tended to use shotguns, which were... Um, you would call them fouling pieces. They were sporting equipment, but you had two shots, so you could load them up with anything you wanted. And they didn't have the range of the British muskets, which were military-issue, state-of-the-art muskets. But these battles always came down to -to hand-to-hand conflict in the end, so they were good enough over 50 or 60 metres. Good God. Yes, you have the Māori defenders armed with tomahawks, which um, Mm. when you look at the the types of wounds that the British soldiers um, suffered, you could see that um, tomahawks probably played a a fairly strong hand in uh, that close quarter fighting. And um, the British had bayonets and they were trained to be ruthless. They fought in small groups. The long musket with an 18-inch bayonet on the end of it was a very nasty weapon indeed. Okay, Mm. one of the reasons that so much of the superior gear, this firepower that the colonial forces had, is that they were wasted. Buddy, can you tell us, was it a flag that was put up that designated where the centre of the par was and they just shifted it like a a, a difficult hole on a putting green? Yes, it's hard to um, verify that, but uh, Uh, the the Māori tradition is that the flag was flying at the rear of the par, and so if the artillery were using that as a sighter, that explains why uh, a number of shells were flying over the par rather than into it, because the assumption was that the flag would be flying in the middle of the par. That's one of those interesting stories that Cliff was talking about, you know, which um, surround the battle. Um, But but I think that uh, the other factor which needs to be taken into account is that, you know, I think he had a typical British gung-ho approach where the officers are leading the men. Mm. When the first fuselage come from the um, Māori defenders, it's the officers who are um, who are taken out of play. And that probably contributed to the lack of leadership shown when um, the troops were actually put into retreat. It's interesting that uh, the night before the battle, the local missioner had a, a dinner for the officers and of the 10 officers who attended, next day nine of them were dead. So mm. I think that's, that's quite a strong contributing factor to what happened. Yeah, that's mm. obviously a factor and the, I, no other word for it, panic ensued. So the PAR was yes. bombarded with superior industrial military might and they thought, OK, we're going in. They've been more than softened up and they caught hell. But first Mm. they saw nothing there and then suddenly it all broke into gunfire. What what was happening? Where were they hiding? You mentioned about trench warfare before and this certainly was quite a a complex fortification and it was all below ground or at ground level and below. It was a real labyrinth. And so the Maori warriors were sheltering some of them in underground pits and some of them in the trench systems themselves. There were probably maybe 230 of them in there. And so when the British came in, the British actually came in four wide and 75 deep. So there was this long column that snaked up the hill and went through the breach into the par. And that was probably a, a, a fairly foolish formation. And it also was a combination of soldiers and sailors, each under their own 
own offices. So once they got inside the par, they came into an area that had been dug, been bombarded all day, and it had been raining all day. Uh, there were 230 men who just erupt out of the trenches and out of these underground pits. It was just a, a crazy melee, probably for 10 or 15 minutes. In this conflict, some, I don't know if they're myths or they're true, but two VCs were one, and there's the story of the water carrier. Who, yes. who wants to talk about some of these kind of heart-rending things that happened? You, you talk um, about the VCs, Cliff, and I'll talk about the water carrier. Good. <laughs> okay. okay. The VC was post the Crimean War, which was really only the decade beforehand, so it was quite a new award. Yes, two VCs were awarded at the Battle of Gate Par, and they were both for carrying wounded senior officers off the battlefield. Uh, there was a, a military surgeon called uh, William Manley and uh, a sailor called Samuel Mitchell who won the Victoria Cross for doing that. And then at the subsequent battle at Tiranga, there were two more uh, infantrymen who won a, a Victoria Cross, this time for what they did in the assault of the trenches at Tiranga. But he mentioned before that there were 10 people at a dinner the night before and nine of them were killed. Yeah. Well, the 10th one was William Manley and he won the Victoria Cross. Ah, uh, OK. <clears throat> All right. So now. With, the, with, with the water um, carrier, um, Graham, so... It, it appears that they had uh, the Maori defenders had um, had a, a prayer for the day and uh, probably a biblical text, and the text that uh, accompanied that day was, um, "If thine enemy hunger, feed him; if he thirst, give him drink." And so they took this as, as an injunction, so that during the night, with all these wounded British soldiers lying around the battlefield, someone or some some persons from within the par took water to them. And the person who's generally credited with doing that is a woman named Henny Kitkaramu, taking um, water, I think, in a tin can to um, people like uh, Colonel Booth, who was one of the commanders of the regiments who'd been fatally wounded uh, and was dying on the battlefield. And so there's that kind of legend that came out of that. Not only did they fight to a code of conduct, but they also conducted themselves in this very chivalrous way. Previously, it would be part of the battle that, that uh, if you had wounded people, you'd go out there and kill them or mutilate them or something. But that never happened at Gate Park. And I think that chivalry really captured the Victorian sentiment of the, of the time, which is what distinguished the Battle of Gate Par from all the other conflicts um, because of, of, of what happened during the night. And it's, um, I think it, 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 you can see in the history of Tauranga how that particular act has become something to be celebrated and commemorated. And you can, you know, in, in the ensuing years, like at the 50th commemoration of the battle, you, you have this theme repeatedly mentioned. So I think that's why the battle truly stands out as being something really different in New Zealand's history. Mm. What was the yeah. code of conduct? A lot of Māori had embraced Christianity to some extent by this period of time. So as Buddy was saying, normally in battle you would just um, kill all the, the enemy and um, maybe uh, take, take the remainder as slaves. But um, this new code of conduct that Māori had been experimenting with and thinking about how they would apply to warfare if the British ever came to Tauranga was put into effect. And what it what it was about was looking after the wounded, allowing the, each side to um, bury their own dead. And uh, if people surrendered, they were not to be killed, but they would that would be respected. 
And there's even a phrase, uh, one of the rules that was proposed was that if you run to the house of the priest, you will be safe. So it was really rules around the treatment of the wounded and those who um, decided that they, they didn't want to fight anymore. Okay. And there, we've got a lovely story in our hapu, um, Graham, whereby um, a young Māori woman took her horse. She found um, some wounded Pākehā soldiers on the battlefield, so she loaded one onto her horse and took him into uh, where they were being treated. And then she went back... But by the time she got back and found another one, it was getting dark, and so she was afraid that she might get mistaken for an enemy and shot. So she actually took him back to her home and cared for him there. A little while later, after he'd recovered, he actually married her. And mm. so the Hall family, who come from um, from uh, Tauranga, are descendants of that union. And it's interesting that they've played a prominent role in um, the early uh, actions taken by Tauranga Māori to have their grievances addressed by the government. And those grievances resulted from the confiscation of their lands for being in rebellion. How is it connected to your whakapapa? You are a descendant of some of the combatants here? Yes, so my great grandfather fought there, um, carried his musket through the through the battle, um, and the Hall family. Um, so they're they're related to me. They're about third cousins or something like that. Mm. Other than that story, how else is it remembered, commemorated within Maori tradition? Is the haka, um, called fai fai, anything carving, oral stories, song, waiata? Oh, I Certainly in our meeting house, all those um, warriors who took part and who survived, you know, there are there are what they call po, which are um, the main carvings within a meeting house. So we've got a, a selection of them celebrating that, that fact. We tell stories about what happened at the battle. Um, there are particular waiata that are sung which uh, commemorate what happened. It's just part of our hapu anyway because... Our hapu is the one that mostly had their land confiscated, so we have every uh, kind of encouragement to remember um, gate par with um, a particular perspective. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, there is the subsequent battle of Teranga, but yes. uh, after all that, there are, it seems to be, punishments and confiscations that are kind of still being addressed today. What was the deal with that, buddy? Well, you had a piece of legislation in 1863 called the Native Settlements Act, which was based very much on British legislation that had been used in Ireland for the confiscation of land. Um, And so they already had a template for how to do this. Um, And so you had this applied. So all you had to do was have Māori deemed to be in rebellion, and the punishment for that was confiscation of land. And so that's what was applied um, at Tauranga. Something like 200,000 acres, probably more, was initially confiscated. And then the governor said that, well, we're only going to keep one-fourth of that. So 50,000 acres, basically, which is the land that the city of Tauranga now stands on. Um, So while all the hapu and tribes that took part were initially punished, um, the actual bulk of the um, punishment fell on my hapu because that, 50,000 acres was their traditional lands and so they were the ones really who bore the brunt of the punishment. How how has it been dealt with by the Waitangi Tribunal? 
The Waitangi Tribunal has found in favour of um, all the Tauranga claimants um, and so there's been various settlements put up. Um, we've got our share. We, we, um, we believe that we've been poorly served, but hey, we'll live with it and just get on with things. Um, but it doesn't mean we won't stop not trying to get a, a proper proportional response in terms of the injustice that we see. And it's been um, a torch that's been passed from generation to generation. My great-grandfather passed it to, to his son, my grandfather, who took a petition to Parliament about that. It's been passed on subsequently to my father's generation and then to my generation. And it's um, it's my father's generation and my generation that have done the most to try and get some redress on these these things. So we've been at the forefront of our Waitangi Tribunal claims. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're still going today, but um, it's in a much more shall we say, informal uh, approach to things because the the main grievance has been set out. Everybody understands what it is. So it's just a matter of finding ways to implement settlements. And I bet every time you drove down Cameron Road, the intersection of that with St George Street, Burns Street, where we know the exact location of where this happened, it would resonate. And maybe with this book, it will resonate with other people too, to at least know where they are and what happened. Mm. Yes, that's the aim, is to just um, educate people. I, I've i been um, studying this subject for about 30 or more years now and teaching it in various places and taking people around the, the battlefields and almost invariably people have no idea about our colonial history and they don't understand how it still impacts us today. Really our aim is to try and educate and explain what went on and um, and what the roots for a lot of the issues that we still talk about today where that all started. Believe it or not, listeners, this is Once Over Lightly, and I hope you go get the book, Victory at Gate Par, question mark. Happened in 1864. Uh, the co-authors, Buddy McCarty and Cliff Simons, thank you both so very much for being a tag team on this. It's been great. Uh, thank you, Graham. Welcome, Graham. All of these. Yeah. Most welcome. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Alrighty, would you like a copy of Victory at Gate Par? Big fat question mark. That's the title. Uh, give us a call now. 0800 844 747. No hoops to go through. Someone that calls up now will get a copy of the book mailed off to them. There's a YouTuber by the name of Lindy Beige. I rate the guy. He's so funny. Look him up. L-I-N-D-Y-B-E-I-G-E. And he did a thing on Gate Par. I just about fell off my chair. By way of introduction, here's a sample. Four minutes of his thing on Gate Par. His goes on much longer, of course. But here's a taster, and why not share the love? talk to you about an interesting example of what you might call asymmetrical warfare, although I'm going to be pointing out that in many ways it was surprisingly symmetrical warfare. The war was one of the Maori wars of the mid-19th century, and Sir Duncan Cameron had been sent to deal with a marauding band of uh, Maori warriors from several tribes that had agglomerated as part of an uprising, a rebellion. And in the area of the Taranga Mission, uh, near the Bay of Plenty, uh, he assembled a force of 1,700 men. 
Now, by world standards and historical standards, you might not think that 1,700 men is a particularly vast force, but by the standards of mid-19th century New Zealand, that was a substantial force. He had a number of uh, naval ships moored in the bay, and they had supplied him with 400 naval troops. He had army troops from four different regiments, and uh, together with a detachment of Royal Artillery, he had, as I say, 1,700 men to deal with this uprising. He had 14 artillery pieces going from 6-pounder up to 40-pounder. Uh, 40-pounder, that's a big, hefty gun. He had eight mortars, uh, um, 6 inches, and I think two of them were 6 inches, and four, uh, the others were 8 inches. So these are big, hefty things. So don't think of the, the World War II-style thing with a narrow tube, quite portable, like that. No, it wasn't one of those. These are the big, hefty siege mortars that lob, socking great big bits of ironmongery and explosiveness into the air and down onto the enemy. Uh, and added to this, he got another artillery piece off one of the ships. This was a 110-pounder gun, an absolutely colossal thing. And it was, at the time, the biggest gun ever to have been brought to bear against what shall I call them, uh, the, the less civilised people of the world, natives, if you like. They, they, some people at the time might have used the word savages, but I understand that that's uh, probably not going to please everyone in my audience. But um, you understand that the people who didn't have quite that tech level, um, those sort of people, it was the first time anything that big had been used against them. He uh, presumably was reasonably confident of success. The commander, Sir Duncan Cameron, who was a Highlander and quite a respected leader, and so far as I can tell, was... Uh, not blamed for anything that uh, later came to pass. Uh, it seems he'd done everything by the book and had done everything right. Now, uh, I talked about symmetrical and asymmetrical warfare. You see, asymmetrical warfare, uh, the two sides might have radically different ways of fighting and also radically different chances of success. So you might have one side that is extremely well-trained, well-disciplined, well-equipped, numerous, uh, well-supplied and all the rest of it, and the other side that is none of those things, and you can tell which way uh, that war's going to go. Uh, but this lot, the weaker lot, knowing that the war's going to go that way, are probably going to uh, not do the stupid thing, which would be uh, fight a big pitched battle in the open because this side is just going to win. So instead, you have, they have to go for guerrilla tactics, hit and run, ambushes, assassinations, some other form of warfare other than the set-piece battle, which is what this side uh, is really, really good at, so that it would be foolish to take them on in the set-piece battle. With this war, though, against the Maori, it sort of wasn't like that because the Maori were also very well disciplined, very experienced, very well trained, often very well led, uh, determined fighters. Uh, with regard to equipment, um, they were less well equipped overall uh, than the British, although they were, and every source seems to agree on this, every source that I've ever read over the years has agreed that they were second to none when it came to siege warfare. They were particularly good with earthworks. They were the best sappers in the world, possibly. They could dig trenches quickly and efficiently and they knew exactly where to put them and how to make them and what to use them for and they adopted an asymmetrical form of warfare against the british and not actually just against the british this was a tactic they sometimes used against each other you would fortify an area but rather than hold it at all costs you just held it to make it such that the enemy taking it off you has to pay a very high price. So you fortify this area, you garrison it, the enemy then comes along, takes it off you, but you make absolutely sure he pays a very high price for doing that, you then withdraw and build another fort. The enemy has to take that off you, paying again a high price. And this is what they were doing. And they created Gatepa. 
They didn't, actually. They created gate par. I, I always used to think it was called gate par because I didn't realize that uh, G-A-T-E was actually the English word gate.